police bias and use of discretion has become a media focus and my guest today has been studying the issue for some time. There is a huge power in, in criminalization and it does begin with police interactions. Today we'll be focusing on the treatment of black youth at the point of diversion from the criminal justice system. My name is Omar Phoenix Khan and this is Justice Focus. Kanika Samuels-Wortley is an assistant professor at the Institute of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Carleton University in Canada. She specialises in race and racism, youth delinquency, policing, corrections and critical race theory. Her current research explores how perceptions and experiences with racial discrimination by law enforcement officials may contribute to victimisation and offending among black and indigenous youth thus maintaining their oppression and marginalisation in Canadian society. And I'm very glad to say Kanika joins me today to talk about one of her papers. So Kanika, welcome to Justice Focus. Thank you so much for having me. No, I'm, I'm very, very glad that you're here to have a chat about a really interesting paper. Thank and you. Be- before we get to to that paper, which, which I'll make sure I put a link in the show notes to, um, I know that you previously... Uh, were employed within the police and intended to become a police officer before you've sort of swayed away from that into the path of academia. So what was it that, um, we, had you always wanted to, to be involved in the police and then what what got you to, to move separately from them? Yeah, so I always wanted to be part of an institution that focused on social justice. Hmm. So I had the kind of the sense of what policing was about, kind of, I think what we all traditionally believe when we're younger, what policing is about is about kind of saving others and, and those in distress Mm. who are there to, to support them. Um, and, and yeah, locking up the criminals. Yeah. Um, Good guys and and bad guys. Yeah, exactly. Um, so when I became employed with a police service, I started off as a civilian and I, started off as a youth diversion coordinator. So in that capacity, I was responsible for providing uh, youth an alternative to court. So Mm. in this way, police officers selected who, um, when they apprehended a youth who was engaged in a criminal activity, the officer had the opportunity to provide that youth a diversion. Mm. And at that point, I would take over and then provide programming to that youth that was separate and an alternative to the court, to, to attending court. Okay. Um, so I, I was quite enthused to be a part of, of that and, and certainly felt that I was involved in, in a program that took youth away from the court system, which as I was going through um, my undergrad, I recognized that the court system wasn't exactly the best route to go. So I was mm. quite happy to be part of a program that was using um, alternative um, practices and mm. in opposition to the court system. But I had access to seeing who was being channeled through uh, the court system um, as opposed to who was being provided a charge or even just a simple caution. Mm. And it was when I, I saw the data or, or I had access to that. And I definitely noted I would be reading cases um, or officers notes 
um, indicating that they had apprehended a youth and that youth was being sent to court. And I would certainly notice that a lot um, of these youth tended to be black youth. And mm. I remember specifically um, bringing that up with, with a colleague um, at the service and, and there really was no response to it. It kind of was like a shrugging of the shoulders and, and kind of moving forward. There really was mm. no critical look into, into that any further. And I think it was at that point, because I had every intention of becoming a police officer and thinking I was going to be part of, of something good. And it really was at that point that I saw that there really wasn't going to be a critical analysis or, or any look into to racial bias. I mean, it was mm. often spoke of, um, but clearly wasn't going to be addressed and it was at that point that I, I decided that probably education was the better route as it was something that I wanted to, to look into further. Yeah. And um, I think at that point I knew that if that, if racial biases or, or racial disparities was something I wanted to look at, it wasn't going to be within the police institution. Mm. And when you were picking up these, you know, differences in treatment, whether it's obvious in your face or... This, looking at the statistics, mm-hmm. when you when you brought it up, did you did you find that you felt that it was people just they didn't have time and energy to think about anything, so they had so much to do, or like a sort of a willing uh, obliviousness at it, or, or is it some or something else? See, that's that's very difficult to say because, mm. and that's kind of the issue when you're studying racial bias. Um, and, and with specific individuals, because I, I think we're not at a time now where somebody would come out and blatantly say, yes, I stopped this yeah. person because they were yeah. um, black or indigenous. Um, so it's hard to answer that question. But mm. do I think that there are biases um, or stereotypes that play into where police tend to place their attention? Mm. Yes. So... Um, a kind of another um, component of my position as a youth diversion coordinator is that I would have the opportunity to look at cases where officers dealt with youth. And because I would take that as an opportunity then to educate police officers as to the options that they did have in terms mm. of, of giving them a diversion. Yeah. And that was... It was it was a, a standard component, so I would very often go out to to um, educate officers of that opportunity, and it really didn't seem to change much um, mm. to know that that opportunity to divert youth um, was there. Mm. So that's and how that's did you what... find that relationship between you know, being a civilian member of staff and then uniformed officers? Was there tension? Was there, Is there tension you know? between it? I mean, there's certainly a level of respect between civilians mm. and, and police officers, but you definitely see that there is a culture in where police officers are, are, are treated, I'm not going to say better, but they are <laughs> treated differently in the sense of yeah. they are, I mean, there definitely is a, a camaraderie between police officers. So I think it's mm. the sense of if you're a civilian, you don't understand what we go through. Um, there is that narrative with police officers. So if you have that narrative and, and police tend to feel that way, I think there might be a level of of, of miscommunication between the two, yeah. uh, between civilians yeah. and, and police officers. Yeah. Um, which also, to be honest, was a push for why I wanted to be an officer. I kind of felt like I, I, I want to be able to communicate 
the same way yeah. that you officers are communicating with one another. And uh, so I, I, I don't want to say that they're, civilians are looked down upon because that's not the case. There definitely is an element of support and there's a recognition that civilians are supportive. Um, mm. But police definitely, yeah. there is a, a, a brotherhood or a sisterhood between police officers yeah. that is certainly there. Okay. And so at that point you, you, you had wanted to go and kind of be closer and have that kind of bond and, and closeness to having an impact, but then you've, you've changed direction. And so what happened then? When did you, when did I you make sh- that decision and what did you do at that point? I, I kind of made that decision because the service that I had worked with, there were, at the time, there were only two black women in the entire service. So oh, right. a service of, I believe at the time, was 3,000 members. Mm-hmm. So I really, I, I truly felt that this was an opportunity. And I was, I was supported by other officers to say that this is a great opportunity for you to become part of the service and to become part of change. So I would be the third black woman on this, mm-hmm. the entire service. Yeah. And, and I... I did. I felt like that was 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 something that was important, and also to have that level of of representation within um, the police service, which is we often hear that we need to diversify our police services. So I really did feel like this, in a sense, was was such a huge opportunity to to be part of mm-hmm. of racial change and, and social change within the institution. Did it feel but like th- pressure as well? There. Uh, there was, uh, you know what, I wouldn't say there was, because I would, I would say that there was, they would place that opportunity. They were saying that this would be a great opportunity for you. But I mm. think where I recognized that it was in a sense a bit of lip service is when I did bring mm. up issues of race, and yeah. specifically in my capacity as, as a diversion coordinator, there really wasn't mm. much um, that went any further than, than that. And you, can, I, you could sense the tension when you brought up racial issues. Mm. Um, and I think it's at that point, I felt that I, there definitely was a level of discomfort. Mm. So even though there was that push that yes, this is a great opportunity for you to help diversify our service, when you did try to bring up those issues, there was a lot of pushback. Yeah. Yeah. And and it was at that point that I recognized that that wasn't the place where if I really wanted to focus on on s- racial justice, it wasn't going to be within the police institution, within yeah. those walls. Yeah. So it was at that but, point that I felt that academia was the best route to go. Yeah, and your studies have specifically looked at this aspect, and so yes. you know, it's it's you you have you know forged that path and are making impact in in that area. So, shall we talk a little bit about your research and now certainly, you've certainly. made that, that uh, change of direction in your career? And so, yeah, I, so I know that the title is of the paper that we're going to talk about today is "Youthful Discretion: Police Selection Bias in Access to Precharge Diversion Programs in Canada." Mm-hmm. And that's in the journal Race and Justice 2019. Yes. And so um, maybe I, maybe you could give us a little bit of background about sort of the reasoning behind the intro of pre-trial diversion in Canada and sort of the background to this specific paper. Obviously, you've just explained about how you worked in that system, but um, yes. just as kind of prelude to the paper. Yes, certainly. So prior to, we initially had um, a Youth Justice Act 
um, that saw a, a, a gross amount of, of youth that were within our court system. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, we uh, Canada enacted the Youth uh, Criminal Justice Act, which specifically indicated that they wanted to uh, limit the use of court intervention when it came to um, dealing with youth who engaged in criminal behavior, uh, activity. Yeah. So that's kind of where diversion programs came from, where my mm-hmm. position as a diversion um, coordinator stemmed from. Yeah. Um, Okay, so yes, with the implementation of the Youth Criminal Justice Act, there were changes to um, sentencing and increasing the use of diversion. Hmm. And a number of studies um, indicated that this did succeed, the implementation of of the Justice Act succeeded in reducing uh, the use of, of youth courts without increasing crime rates. So essentially, it was showing that we didn't need to, to place our, our youth in correctional institutions in order to deal with crime. Yeah. So it was, so looking at youth diversion was certainly a huge, um, a huge opportunity to see how we can deviate away from our, the correctional system. Yeah. But there really wasn't, um, a look at racial disparities. So even though we were seeing a decrease in the use of, of court interventions, we still did see that there were racial disparities in relation to remand, as well as mm-hmm. um, uh, racial disparities in relation to uh, the type of youth who were in our youth correctional system. Mm. So I kind of saw this... Um, so when I had access to this data, I definitely saw this as an opportunity to see kind of we're starting off at the point of police are, are essentially the gatekeepers to the criminal justice system. They are the starting point. Yeah. So I felt this was an opportunity to look at who are police selecting to, to go through diversion? Who are they selecting to go through court? And who are they just warning and, and, and essentially letting go um, mm. without any form of, of formal documentation? Yeah. And I read in your paper, you, you talk about labeling theory and, you know, it's interesting because mm-hmm. everybody in criminology obviously has to teach labeling theory, but you very much look at it in action in Canada. Yes. And I just wondered if you wanted to, to mention Certainly. How, how you saw that. So uh, labeling theory really had a huge impact on the creation of the Youth Criminal Justice Act. Um, there was a huge um focus on the impact of, of having a criminal record or the huge impact of, of being part of the correctional system. And it was the idea that if youth started off that way, if they started off with having a label as a criminal that can have a huge um, impact on future opportunities or who they became as an adult. So there really was a push to try to limit any type of, of criminal label because they did not mm. want to place that and, and saw that there was no ut- utility in, in using the criminal justice system really to deal with a lot of minor issues that I think we all can yeah. say that we've engaged in something that we um, <laughs> do as, as youth and, and, and that's not who we are as, as, as people or who we are yeah. or who we become as adults. Yeah. So I think there was that recognition. So there really was a push to make sure that there weren't there was a criminal label would not have a huge significant impact on the life outcome um, hmm. of of individuals. And, specifically and your of thinking, 
going into it was that that not only were there certain labels, but it was a there was a distinct racial element to the labeling that was going on. Yeah. Certainly, um, I, I I think uh, studies have have continuously shown that there are racial disparities. Um, sp- Absolutely, certainly in the U.S., certainly in the U.K., but mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's it's well known that there really are few studies that are able to demonstrate this from a Canadian context. Right. And the reason for this is because we um, there are formal and informal bans on the collection of race-based data in Canada. Mm. And actually, this has changed literally this week. Um, oh, really? Wow. It, it has. So, but to speak of just how hard it is for researchers to look at mm. racial disparities in Canada is simply because of these bans on, on race-based statistics. Mm. So why this study, the study that I did in particular, was of importance is because I had actual police data that demonstrated, that looked at, at racial categories and the charging decisions. Yeah. Um, of individuals based on race. Yeah. And this would not have been possible. And I am a firm believer that this would not have been possible if I was not working for the service. If I did not get um, permission by the chief, it had to come from the top. Mm. So it's your previous connections and relationships that allowed you to. Yeah. And I, I have to say, I commend the, the chief um, for allowing access to this because traditionally Canadian police chiefs have avoided any type of conversation or releasing any type of race-based data that Mm -hmm. that would demonstrate any racial disparities. Yeah. Yeah. So it really was only because I had, um, the support of, of the chief to, to look at this. So originally the study was truly to look at how our diversion program had helped, um, decrease the number of youth that were going into the court system in, in, in the region that I, I um, was working for. So again, it was really to demonstrate and to support and show that the police service was following the ideals of, of the youth criminal justice act. Yeah. And great. So should we get into the actual paper then? So I'm interested in, because you could have taken this in, in so many different directions. Obviously you could have done long interviews with, with uh, people involved in the system. You could have looked at data. And so I know that you've, use a couple of different methods. So um, how did you approach this kind of trying to assess the level of uh, racial disparity in the, the pre-charge diversion program? Mm-hmm. So uh, I was able to um, get uh, a record of all youth who were first time offenders, first time, mm-hmm. first time I'm, I'm getting into the system and race is recorded. So it was very, um, it was accessible for me to see the race of the individuals who um, were recorded now within the system for the first time. Mm. And so it was at that point I was able to see the race of the individual as well as the charging decision. Yeah. So it was quite uh, easy for me to see um, what was, and so looking specifically at first time offenders, it, it controlled for all other factors because I know often there might be the argument that, well, you might, uh, uh, an officer might be apprehending a, a youth or an individual who um, has engaged in criminality um, a number of times. So that is exactly mm-hmm. why that individual was charged. Um, mm-hmm. But that was controlled for. And so it specifically only looked at first time offenders and specifically how 
that officer dealt with that individual. Yeah. And specific to the Youth Criminal Justice Act, it indicated that officers had to use diversion or they supported or advised officers to use diversion as the first course of action. Yeah. So I was able to see that uh, a youth was charged, even though they were a first-time offender, that certainly can raise eyebrows as to, if we know within our act, it, it specifically indicates that officers should be looking at alternatives as opposed to court. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly allowed for an exploration as to to the characteristics of individuals who were being charged, um, even though they were a first-time offender. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's when. And this I was said, in Toronto. Is that right? It was not in Toronto. It's in a. Oh, sorry. A, a, do you know that's okay? It's in a a, a regional uh, municipality that's in the Greater Toronto Area. So it's right. outside okay. of 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 Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I. I I wish I could just say the the service, but I'm kind of stipulated not to say the service. Um, so I unfortunately can't indicate the region, but um, mm, sure, there is documentation out there to show what region mm. it is. Okay, great. Um, so yes, uh, so that is how I was able to look at, I was able to specifically look at different characteristics. I was able to look at gender, uh, race, also the geographic location of, of where the youth was apprehended. Mm. And what I mean mm. by that is the municipality that I'm looking at has, um, sorry, the region that I'm looking at has different municipalities, mm-hmm. which um, encompasses rural areas as well as, as urban areas. Yeah. So I was able to see if there were the charging decisions um, in comparison to urban and rural areas. Great. Well. And so I obviously want to ask you about all of those results, but I know you've kindly recorded a short clip that is around the conclusions of that study mm-hmm. so i think uh, i think we'll play that now it's always nice to to hear the actual writing spoken by the research themselves so i'll play that now and then i'll have some questions about the results okay the police have the unique power to stop question search investigate arrest detain and monitor anyone they deem as a potential criminal. The police use discretion when making these decisions, and discretion is often vulnerable to bias. Thus, while police are guided by laws, they have a great deal of control with respect to how and on whom they enforce these laws. As a result of police discretion, there is potential for inconsistencies in the diversion selection process. So this study demonstrates that black youth are more likely to be charged and less likely to be cautioned than white youth and youth from other racial backgrounds. In particular, treatment appears to be harsher for black males accused of cannabis possession compared to youth from other racial minority backgrounds. Thus, racial discrimination may play a role in how police select youth to be diverted from the formal court system for minor offenses in Canada. Okay, great. Thank you for for sending that clip. Um, yeah, really interesting. We've got a section of the conclusion there, but are there any other points from the overall discussion and conclusion that you'd like to to pull out from that? So I think what I'm 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 trying to demonstrate here is that the 
the police with this study is that the police have a a huge um, amount of discretion in essentially who they stop and and charge, mm. and really to look at the power of criminalization and the impact of a criminal record, and mm. it really does begin with police interactions, and. What this study is demonstrating is that this is having a significant impact on racialized people, mm. and this is particularly in this study for for black individuals. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that a criminal record can kind of create a cyclical pattern. So you have more of a focus on on black, indigenous, or racialized communities that um, increases the risk of having a criminal record that then can a decrease opportunities for social upward mobility that can incre- decrease opportunities for job, um, um, for employment, um, for educational opportunities, mm-hmm. for access mm-hmm. to, 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 to social services, whatever it may be. And, and when you don't have those opportunities, as we know within the research, that can increase the risk of, of criminality and it can increase um, potential criminal behavior. So it's yeah. all a cyclical pattern, and, and I think what I'm, I'm really trying to demonstrate is how this all begins with the decision of police. And if there are racial biases within the decisions as to who the police um, tend to focus on and who they tend to surveil, this will undoubtedly have a, a huge impact on racialized communities thus increasing their presence within within the correctional system. Yeah. And just on a point of, of language, I think it, I find it really interesting that you mentioned about racialized groups, because obviously every group has a racial identity. And, and you oh. point out that the officers often see white as a, as a default and not mm-hmm. really having a race at all. And so I just wondered if, if you want to mention anything about that. I thought that's interesting. Yeah, certainly. So I think, and this is certainly a wider conversation that I think we should be having about how we should be looking at whiteness as as a race and what does it mean to be white in society. Mm. Um, Because I think it's if you're not, um, because white is often seen as the default if you're non-white, and we even see this demonstrated in our own academic work, you'll often see individuals um, categorized as non-white, and it, it hmm. seems to give that level of of it's white is the norm, and 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 everything yeah. else then is not. Yeah, um, and also they're neutral, and the natural point that anything else is different means that it's usually different in a negative it sense, and exactly is different, and to, then will also yeah. garner more attention. Mm. Um, mm. So I. It, so I think it is very important to to demonstrate those differences and the differences in in experiences is in the everyday life, especially. And, and this is kind of where I am. I see myself as a, a critical race scholar because I think it's very important to to demonstrate that race is an everyday experience for racialized individuals. Mm-hmm. They walk in this society experiencing something completely different from individuals who are white and who are seen as the norm um, yeah. and as neutral. And so I think it's very important to demonstrate those differences. And, and to demonstrate those differences, there needs to be a discussion as to what are the experiences of, of, of what it is to be white. And mm-hmm. for white individuals to also see 
what it is to be black or indigenous. Yeah. And I think yeah. we need to have those those conversations further about how race really does um, have an impact on how we are seen in society or how we're able to move within society. Definitely. And I really liked in your paper where you then looked at several levels of that and the intersectionality with gender and mm-hmm. also the offence type. And mm-hmm. so... Yeah, would you like to expand any more on what you found and, and yeah, certainly. your conclusions so, around that intersectional? Yeah, certainly. So looking at offence type, it was demonstrated that I had looked at two offences. I'd looked at um, cannabis possession as well as um, theft um, yeah. under 5,000, which were, and the reason those two were selected was because they are the two um, common offences among, among youth uh, mm. in Canada. And in both, um, when I was looking at race as well as gender, in both instances, individuals who are apprehended for cannabis were more likely to be charged um, or provided a diversion in order to educate youth about the ills of marijuana use. Right. Um, but there definitely were some differences when I looked within uh, the gender context. So there was a significant difference um, with black males uh, black males were more likely to to be charged, um, significantly more likely to be charged when it came to cannabis possession. And I, I feel that this might have to do with with stereotypes and kind of the idea of the the criminal black man and and also mm. kind of the war on drugs tends to be um, a focus not only in the US but in Canada as well. Mm. And Marijuana possession is is a way to to criminalize um, a black male, um, a black man in in uh, in in that context. So we didn't. You saw that there were charges with with black um, young black women. However, not to the same extent. Um, but we did see that there was a disparity with black um, young black women um, in mm. comparison to their white. Um, yeah woman counterpart um yeah so i mean basically it sounds like what you what you sensed when you were working in the system has been borne out in your very specific research in this area and so now what i'm wondering is in terms of impact and you know uh, you've worked both as a practitioner and now as a researcher i'm just wondering how you feel about uh, you know your, the approach to change in the real world, and how you find the collaboration between researchers and the practitioners, and whether you think there's a tangible impact that can then can happen from this research. Certainly. So I think this is it's a huge opportunity for researchers and practitioners to work together. It just appears that we're often in our own silos, where researchers mm. will tend to conversate and, and interact with other researchers and it, it essentially is the same with practitioners as well hmm. and and I, I think with practitioners I think and quite often of course it's it's what they see and and a lot of the experiences is being on based on 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 kind of anecdotal evidence and I think with researchers when we can look kind of uh, look at general trends um, that can be helpful for practitioners and to to kind of look outside of the the box of of mm. where they are the institution that they are and 
it's really unfortunate that I think as well is that our for researchers our our work is not accessible and it really should be, mm. and and this would be, it is an opportunity for us to to create a level of of change, so I, and if I'll go back to policing I I think and it's it. Police officers might say that you know, how are we not to um, focus on on certain populations, um, they'll often say that they are not profiling based on race, they're profiling based on crime. So they're criminally mm. profiling and not um, focusing on, on racial communities. Mm. But, and, and I can maybe appreciate that if, if what they essentially say is every time a crime is committed, they essentially feel that it's with a racialized community. But if there was more access to, to, to research to demonstrate that kind of what what are the historical um, impacts of, of racialized communities? Kind of there's a, an opportunity here to understand that specifically in Canada with Black and Indigenous peoples, we have a, a, a horrible colonial past. Uh, mm. We do even have a horrible um, past that that is based in slavery for Black individuals and mm. how that has impacted um these specific racialized communities and, and how that has an increases potential risks um, for crime and how that can possibly then change um, the notion of what a criminal is and, and maybe yeah. looking at the social um, the social factors that that really can help maintain um, uh, uh, marginalization. Yeah, um, yeah. No, it's really interesting you mentioned that. I was wondering whether you, you felt that legacies of colonialism was something that, you know, the, these biases are, are, are built on. And I know this paper specifically is from a critical race perspective, but your work going forward, I wonder whether you will be including more of a, a decolonial approach. Is that something that's on the horizon uh, for you? Or you're doing I that perhaps? Yeah, no, I certainly do because our, our stats indicate that indigenous and black peoples are overrepresented within our, our mm. court, our correctional system and, and even police surveillance. Yeah. And really you can also then say that both of these groups are the ones that have suffered most from our mm. Canadian colonial past. Mm. Um, Canada was founded on the oppression and exploitation of indigenous peoples. And even after the abolishment of slavery in the U S many black peoples did settle in Canada. And so we have this narrative and ex even in Canada, we push this narrative that we saved um, people who were enslaved from the U S. Um, right. However, okay. historical records do indicate that black peoples in Canada were treated as subordinates. When they came here, they lived in poor mm. conditions. They had limited access to land ownership and they too were also um, subjected to segregated schools. Mm. And, when you look at the history of the police, and even when we look specifically at the history of our National Police Service, which is the um, RCMP, mm. they are rooted in controlling Indigenous peoples. They were rooted in imposing control um, over land disputes. That is why they were initially created in Canada. Mm. So mm. we do, there's, there's a historical pass as to how policing has played a role in, in our Canadian history. And mm. I, I don't think many people know that. 
And I don't think many people um, want to explore that. And I think this is where we as researchers can truly show um, how these have this, these histories have significant um, impacts on our system today. Yeah. Yeah. And I was wondering whether, you know, we're we're speaking in the summer of 2020. So Mm -hmm. has there been an increase sort of an uptick in attention to your work because of, um, you know, all the attention on these topics? And I was wondering, as as well as whether there's been more attention in your work, just how have you found this this extra sort of... um, spotlight on these topics and I ask that because I've spoken to lots of other people working in this area that have been working for a long time mm-hmm. in in these on these topics mm-hmm. and actually it's I know I felt quite overwhelmed by it sometimes if you'd asked me before I wouldn't have predicted that I would have had such a sort of physical reaction and I've you know been wanting to have these conversations for such a long time but now there's there seems to be such a lot of pressure to um, say the exact right thing and I just wondered how working in this area feeling so strongly about these topics uh, and then to have the summer we've just had um, yes how how's how's it been for you yeah i i echo everything that you've said there it uh when you feel that this has been kind of work that um you've done for many years and then literally within a matter of weeks um mm. it's it's it, it's like your life's work is now part of the mainstream yeah, um, and and it's become global conversations, and then you have individuals who are obviously even well aware of your work now have questions to ask, and mm. it has been very overwhelming. But it's it's truly hopeful. Like this is a time yeah. that I don't think anyone can say they've ever felt before, um, or that there has been such a wide audience to to these issues. Mm. And and the hope is that this will create a level of change. Um, so as I had mentioned previously, that Canada had a formal and informal ban on the collection of race-based statistics. So that was never mm. truly released um, to the public. And now just last week, um, it's been announced that we are going to be collecting race-based data from police services. So our national... Um, our, our national statistics, uh, 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 statistics Canada, which um, collects um, yeah. national data, will now be um, collecting and releasing um, police interactions with racialized groups. And would you say that's a direct result from the Black Lives Matter a momentum? Percent. Yeah. And I say that because researchers have been calling for this for decades. Mm. Yeah. There have been yeah. numerous inquiries, numerous reports. Um, you know, when you do have researchers that have managed to be able to discuss this in the mainstream within the past few years, it's kind of a a, a, a special piece at that point, and then it doesn't go any further. Yeah. Um, and, and this is what this... It, it's kind of overwhelming that this has been discussed literally for, for decades and all of a sudden it, it seems everybody's on board. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's why I, I certainly would say that this is in direct relation to um, the Black Lives Matter um, push. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also interesting now to see police chiefs support it and say, yeah, we certainly want to collect race ba- or mm. will release race-based statistics when they were so adamantly against it 
Mm. Um, so, I mean, it's, uh, I, I will be hopeful. You have to be hopeful that this will create yeah. a level of change, but you also I think have it's human to... to be a little cynical about it, but exactly. you know, there's no, no use dwelling in that part of it. If you can be hopeful about it, it's good. But I mean, I don't it's... think any of us should beat ourselves up if we, we think and we certainly a little cynically every now and then. Exactly. And, and I think there, there, there is still a little, a level of, of, of cynicism for sure. And mm. I think where that comes from is that I think it's, we are now going to have statistics that will demonstrate that racialized peoples are more likely to um, be apprehended for certain crimes. Mm -hmm. And I think then where I go back to my study and my research is that this essentially can be because of who is being selected to enter these, our criminal system and who is now being recorded. It's not recording the individuals who, who essentially escaped or Mm. um, who is not being overly surveilled. So I think, and I'm speaking specifically in Canada, that now that we are going to be having these conversations and we are now going to have the data that is going to demonstrate the over-representation of racialized peoples, and this data may be used to support why police then claim that they need to focus on certain communities, But I think we then need to bring that discussion to why certain communities um, tend to, um, to 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 be overrepresented in our in our crime data. Yeah, and that yeah. is where I think researchers um, have the opportunity to to look at our colonial past mm. and to look at our our anti black racism um, past as well. So yeah. I think we, as researchers who have been focusing on, on these issues and have called for race-based um, um, data, are now going to have a new fight to demonstrate why we might be yeah. seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. again, having to be hopeful that that will be followed through. And, but, but thinking about the impact of researchers and, and what we can do, you know, I always like to, to end on this hypothetical question that, yeah. you know, if we could curate a room for us to have a conversation about these issues and really try and get impact across mm-hmm. and yeah say we could have 50 people put them in the room for an hour and you know or so what would you be saying to them and who would you be putting in that room what would i say to them i would say that we have to put race and look at racism at the forefront we have to truly show how an oppressive racial system has a significant impact on the lives and well-being of racialized people mm-hmm. because that then leads to um, access to a number of, of social factors that can help um, increase mobility. And there really is no justice unless we have racial justice. Mm. Um, yeah. And who do you think is, is most important to get through to? So who would you put, be putting in the room? Is it the, you know, the, the officer that does walk the streets and, mm-hmm. and stop certain people? Is it some kind of justice ministers that you, you think is them that they actually need to get through or the police chief? Who, who is it that you think is the, the main sort of target audience for your research? I think that everyone should be at that table because <laughs> race and racism room. has an impact on every single part and process of our justice system. 
mm-hmm. right from the inter beginning at the interaction with police officers, then to the court system and who who these individuals, the judges that these individuals are are required to see, then to mm-hmm. our correctional system and 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 correctional officers who are 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 also interacting with these individuals, race and racism. Um, permeates our society and yeah. and everyone needs to be at that table to show how biases are having a significant impact on racialized peoples and the thing is i that's a great question um <laughs> who needs to be at that table but to be honest i think all of society this might sound yeah. really basic no, but all of society needs to be there it it really comes down to even who is being called on we're now seeing um Black individuals who are living their daily lives and police are being called because of that. Yeah. So we really need to yeah. even focus on on the everyday citizen and how their racial biases are having mm. an impact on racialized people. Yeah. So, so the, really everyone the, needs to be at that table. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And uh, yeah, I hope, hope lots of people do read your work so that this can get through. And I, like I say, I will make sure I put a link so that people can read your work. But if people are interested in following more of what you're doing and, and what you're working on at the moment, um, what's the best place for them to, to find you? Contact me through uh, my, my email on my, and I assume that a link will be sent of my contact. Yeah, great. I will put that there. That's fine. Yeah, um, as well as Twitter. I can certainly be reached on Twitter as well. Perfect. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I truly appreciate it. No, no problem at all. No, appreciate you coming on. So, yeah, Kanika Samuels-Wortley, thank you so much for being on Justice Focus today. And good luck with everything. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for listening. I hope you found that episode interesting. If you did, I'd love to hear your feedback on Twitter. I really appreciate it when people share the, the podcast and help other people find it. Uh, if you'd also like to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that also helps other people find it. And I really appreciate hearing your thoughts. And yeah, speak to you next time. Cheers. Cheers.